Vivica, we got Jeff on the line here. What do you want to ask him? What guidance can you offer in terms of building relationships with brokers while you are still building credibility as a multifamily investor without assets and an SCRO? Well, first of all, in order to get the broker relationship, you have to have a relationship. Getting to know them and finding something that you have in common, that's always a good way to do it. If you could find out what they have in common, whatever it happens to be, you want to try to find some hook that you can communicate with them other than just saying, what do you have for me? This is the Diary of an Apartment Investor podcast, and I'm your host, Brian Briscoe. Now, this podcast is designed for the aspiring apartment investor and literally gives them the opportunity to ask the questions that will help them get to the next level. So if you're an aspiring apartment investor, this podcast is for you. Now, this podcast is brought to you by the Tribe of Titans Multifamily Educational Community. It's your one-stop shop for learning how to succeed at apartment investing. Welcome to the Diary of an Apartment Investor podcast. I'm your host, Brian Briscoe, and I'm very excited for today's show. We've got uh, some really, really great people on the line with us. Somebody that I met a long, long time ago as our experienced investor, Jeff Greenberg, who incidentally came on the podcast about a year and a half ago on episode 163, so second appearance, and somebody I met for the first time yesterday, Vivica Rojo. So welcome, guys, and thanks for coming on the show today. Thank you for having me. Yes. Thank you for having both of us. Yes. Thank you, Brian. Excited to be here. All right. And we're going to have a little bit of fun today. So so get ready. And as is tradition, experienced investors up first. So Jeff, do us a favor. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, let's see. I actually got into real estate about 2007, commercial real estate about a little bit later, about 2008, bought my first property in 2010. Mm-hmm. So it took us a little while before we got that first property. And then for the past, uh, what is that, uh, 12, almost 13 years now, I've been doing commercial real estates, all of them syndications. I've had several partners and brought in different people, but mainly Texas, Ohio, Georgia, and Arizona. Okay. Now, a couple questions there. I mean, 2007, 2008 is when you started. Wow. Great times to start. You know, how just real quick, I mean, we're, it looks like we're in going into a recession right now or things are a little bit shaky. Any big lessons learned from, you know, 2007 to 2008 to, to what we're seeing now or any comparisons you'd like to make? Well, the one thing was that I remember my mentor was telling us you know, don't buy anything that's not an eight cap and a 1.6 debt coverage ratio and uh, a 16% cash on cash return. And that's probably why it took us two years to find a deal because those weren't around then. Yeah. (laughs) And, and you're, 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 you're not, you're not seeing those now either. Um, but so that was one of the things, and mm-hmm. and I put a lot of importance on cap rate. And one of the things I've learned is cap rate is one metrics that we use yeah. when looking at deals, but it's only one metrics. It's not the end all. Yep. Yeah. Well, interesting. Interesting. Yeah. So it started in 2008 as far as commercial close on your first in 2010. 
And I don't think lots change. It takes a lot of people a couple of years, but I mean, 2008 to 2010, there was very, very shaky lending environment, a lot of interesting stuff going on. So interesting. So 1.6 DSCR, that kind of blows my mind still. But so how have things progressed since your first property? And what did that first property look like? And you know, what did the next 12 years look like as far as the progression? Well, the first property was a pretty small one. It was actually five fourplexes. Mm-hmm. We treated it as a 20-unit property. We did syndicate it, um, and we did raise money for it, which was scary as hell. We raised uh, $350,000 for that, and that was an immense amount of money for the two of us. It was a great property. The problem was is there was really no value add because mm-hmm. it was a the property was built in 2007, so it was a three-year-old property. They were 100% occupied. The people were already paying electricity, and mm-hmm. we're sitting there, okay, we're going to raise rents, and we're going to charge for water. And they fought the water charges, and raising rent was really slow. And so now we had a property that was cash flowing, but we weren't going to get any quick value adds on it. Mm-hmm. And so that was a big, big lesson we learned there is to make sure there's some value that you could add to a property to increase its value. Yeah. And yeah, that one we held on to for about six years. Now, do you hold on to it because you, you had to hold on to it? Or what was the idea on that one? Well, the original plan was to hold on to it for five years. Okay. And so at year four and a half, we tried to we started selling it. Mm-hmm. And we kind of drew a, a line in the sand on what price we were going to sell it at. Mm-hmm. It took us till year six. And that's mainly because the broker costs were going to eat up most of the profit that we had made. Mm-hmm. So most of the increase in the value. And so we wanted our investors to get a little bit more money. Mm-hmm. And we said, okay, this is where we're going to go. And we had to extend our loan. We, uh, the lender extended our loan for a year mm-hmm. uh, in order for us to get more for our investors. I mean, it was a good investment. The investors got more than they would have if they were in the bank and probably in the stock market. Mm-hmm. But you know, we made very little money on it. Yeah. You know, it, it was a seminar for us. We spent six years learning things. Mm-hmm. But there was a lot of lessons in there. Yeah. But it wasn't a fantastic deal. But we did learn. Our first deal, you know, we're we're selling it right now, and it's it's one of those things where I'll probably make zero pennies because we we elected to push all the profits towards the investors because same thing for us. I think that's sadly the case in a lot of uh, first investments is it's it's more of a seminar for the operators, but yeah, that happens a, a lot. But so twenty plex, you say it cash flowed from the beginning, six year hold, and, and you held out for that six year just to just to make sure you could maximize your investors' return. I think is a great idea. Love the idea on that one. How did it progress from there? So that was your first deal. How did you guys scale from there, and how did you go from there? The next one was pretty much a home run where we got an off market deal. This was in Houston. My uh, broker actually did a cold call on a property, actually met the owner of that property. It was 150 units, but they didn't want to sell that one. But Mm -hmm. they said, oh, hey, we have this other one that's a 60 unit property. And so they went to that one. My broker called me up. Here we are talking broker relationships. He called me of all the people he knew. He called me and said, hey, you've got to get into this deal. He gave me the numbers. And within a day, we had a purchase and sale agreement that was signed and bought that property in in Houston. And we paid under $21,000 a door. So you can imagine in today's market what that is is worth. Yeah. 
A lot of questions that, that pop up there. And the first one that I'll ask is you you mentioned broker relationships. You know, why do you think that broker called you instead of anybody else in, in his Rolodex? I haven't figured that one out yet, mm-hmm. except that we had a California connection. Mm-hmm. He was uh, born in San Jose, California, and relocated out to McAllen, Texas. Okay. And he was branching out to Houston. Mm-hmm. And we had spent a lot of time trying to find properties in McAllen. Mm-hmm. In fact, uh, he was the broker I bought the 20 unit from. So mm-hmm. this was our second deal together. But he had other people that could have come in more quickly and mm-hmm. bought the property. He had people that could have come in for all cash. In yep. fact, he made a bunch of enemies by him bringing it to me. So I don't know. He liked me. We had a relationship. We had spent a lot of time together. We partied in San uh, San Antonio together when we sold when we bought the first property. Mm-hmm. And so we had this bond. It could also be that I had some pictures on him, so uh, that maybe he was afraid I was going to reveal. But <laughs> could have been that party, you know, the, the yeah, that, the, yeah, yeah. So, uh, so we we did have a relationship, and he called me, and I was shocked, and it was yeah. a phenomenal deal. And as I said, some of the other people were very upset that he didn't call them first. Yeah. So yes, broker relationships, finding commonalities. Now, anytime I'm down in that area, I spend time at his place. I actually stay at his house. So that's the kind of relationship that we ended up establishing. Yeah. And that's broker relationships to the next level. And that's, that's, I think the goal of everybody who's like an acquisitions guy is to be the first call or among that first series of calls from a broker when they get the listing, you know, or even, even before they get the listing at times. And I think that's kind of like the Holy grail of acquisitions right there. And you were able to do it. The other thing I'll point out is something that uh, one of my mentors, Michael Blanc talked about a lot is the law of the first deal, where once you get that first property, you tend to get those calls instead of reaching out to brokers, but a lot of goodness there. So broker relationships really help. You know, So McAllen, Texas, is that where the first two properties were at? No, the first one, it was supposed to be McAllen, Texas, but mm-hmm. we ended up in Harlingen, which okay. is about 35 miles from McAllen, Texas. Okay. I wanted to get into McAllen because mm-hmm. it was a much better market, but I figured that Harlingen was a door to get my foot in the door in that in the valley down there. But Harlingen is a slow growth market and it's closer to Brownsville. But we got that one because we figured maybe that will get us closer to getting something in McAllen. Never did get anything in McAllen though. Yeah. So something that you mentioned that I think a lot of people will do is to get in the game. There's a lot more competition in the the really shiny markets, you know, mm-hmm. and your Houston's, your Dallas is right now. I don't know what it was like 10 years ago, but Houston and Dallas and Atlanta and Phoenix, you know, and, and some of your North Carolina, your Charlotte's, you know, right now are kind of the bell of the ball. And it's extremely competitive. And so what you did is you went to Harlingen. It's not McAllen, which is a big border town, one of the largest border crossings in the nation, uh, in the world, actually, but a little bit removed from there. But you said it was easier to buy stuff there. And you did that to kind of get your foot in the door, so to speak. And I think that's that's a smart strategy for a lot of people is, you know, get your foot in the door. And sometimes that means, you know, going a little bit out into the fringes. But was that something intentional or is that something looking back that you, you said, hey, it ended up working that way? I mean, we wanted to get into McAllen because I did like McAllen. Mm-hmm. But, you know, 
it got us comfortable with the whole process. So yeah. I wouldn't, I wouldn't have changed a thing. You know, it got us comfortable dealing with all the issues with uh, any kind of investment, as well as raising money and understanding what our capabilities are. So yeah. it was a great process to learn. I would hate to calculate how much we were getting paid an hour for what we did on that process. But hey, I can't put a dollar amount on the education. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And for people who are geographically challenged, I just Googled it. You know, you got two big border crossings in Southeast Texas. One's McAllen, one's Brownsville, and and Harlingen's right in between the two. So you probably get a lot of the economic activity from the other two cities, but it's not quite as nice of a place to be from the investment standpoint. But once um, SpaceX decides to start having manned launches, Mm -hmm. that area may become very popular because it's only probably about 35 miles from Brownsville. And Mm -hmm. that SpaceX site Mm -hmm. is in Brownsville or down from Brownsville. Interesting. And that was one of the things when we were selling in 2016, they were supposed to start manned space launches. Mm -hmm. And we were thinking, okay, come on, start getting these launches going because that would help our property values. And I don't know that they've done a manned launch yet. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Here we are in 2022. But eventually, eventually they will start launches, which was supposed to bring about 10,000 people a month in -hmm. there to watch those launches. which would be great for the values around that area and the development of Mm -hmm. that area. But that hasn't happened yet. Yeah, that's one thing, you know, track what's coming in, but I would take a lot of things with grain of salt. I think uh, when you're looking at incoming technologies, it's good to know where the hotspots are, what's coming in, but there's always a little bit of risk in that because, you know, things may not uh, develop as fast as people like them is is something something that I've learned a lot. But yeah, I mean, it was still cash flowing. It just didn't give us the value add that yeah. we would hope for. We were down the street from a hospital, and that was one of the big selling mm-hmm. points as well. You could throw a rock to a, this great hospital, uh, actually a teaching hospital. Mm-hmm. So we did get a lot of interns yeah. coming in, and it was a great property. You know, it's just very slow growth market. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Well, thanks for sharing that. Very much appreciate it. Let's uh, talk a little bit more about you a little bit. And so something I like to ask everybody is kind of about their motivation. It's what I call the big burning why. You know, so what would you say your big burning why is? Well, initially it was I was in the middle of a divorce Mm -hmm. and my retirement wasn't going to be substantial enough to keep me going. Mm-hmm. You know, we, my, my ex-wife and I split uh, the house. Well, she get, got the house. I got a little bit out of it, mm-hmm. but I decided, okay, what do I need to do to boost up my retirement? And then once I saw that I was on the path for that, it also became, what am I going to leave uh, as a legacy to my mm-hmm. uh, children, my adult children, and my mainly my grandchildren. I would like to, leave something for them. And so they're more of my motivation now is, you know, what can I do as far as leave education? Because I'm always talking about what I'm doing, but also, you know, leave some money for them for college or to help buy their first house or whatever that I didn't get, you know, nobody left me anything. So I would like to leave something for them. And so that's pretty much my why at this point. 
Yeah, I, I I like that. I like that. You know, when I, when I was growing up, you know, and it's the same thing, you know, you like to give your kids what you didn't have. I remember uh, one year I was in my teens, you know, my, my parents had to replace the uh, sewer line from the house to the street. And my, my dad at one point took me outside, pointed to the big, you know, long hole in the ground and said, that's your college fund right there. <laughs> you know, but, oh, sad. Uh, that was it. It's like, that's your college fund right there. So, uh, Sorry, you know, um, but anyway, yeah, I think that that happens a lot. A lot of people look at, you know, what what they have or didn't have and want to always give their kids and their grandkids, a, you know, a better situation. And I well, this last weekend, my one my one granddaughter wanted to have a white Christmas. Mm-hmm. And so I took my my daughter and my granddaughter. We went to Yosemite. Oh, nice. And and I didn't have to worry about paying for the Airbnb. You know, it was, yeah. okay, it's all there. You know, we'll do that. And then uh, in February, I'm taking the whole family. We're going to Mammoth, mm-hmm. and it's nice to be able to spend some money. Yeah, and not worry about it. Yeah, you know, and say, yeah. okay, you know, I'm paying for the housing. You know, we're going to have a good time together. So it's family time, which mm-hmm. is very important to me, and being able to spend, you know, little chunks of money to go and do things with family, yeah. you know, or go on trips. Something that I like reflecting on is, is from a, a movie, you know, a 90s movie, Forrest Gump, you know, where you got Forrest Gump sitting on that bus bench waiting for the, the bus to come by. And his comment about money is, you know, someone makes the comment about must be nice having all that money. And he just said, it's just one less thing. You know, I was like, well, just one less thing. But man, I, I like how you put that. You didn't have to worry about where the money's coming from. You're going to take your family to Mammoth. You're going to take the, the kids to Yosemite for the white Christmas. And there's just one less thing to worry about. You know, it's like, I don't have to worry about where the money's coming from because we took care of that years and years ago. So anyway, I appreciate you sharing that. One question for you, and then we'll, we'll bring uh, Vivica on, you know, what's, what's next for you? Well, I'm in the middle of um, a uh, fund an equity fund. Basically, mm-hmm. it's a uh, diversified, customizable equity fund, mm-hmm. which is a little bit uh, a long term there. But basically, what it means is because investors can pick and choose what assets they want to be in. Okay, normally when you go into a fund, you're whatever comes into the fund, you're in. Mm-hmm. Well, it's a customizable fund where people can pick and choose what they want to be in. So because of that, I could make it very diversified. Mm -hmm. I can do multifamily, self-storage. I'm in a short-term rental fund. I'm looking at doing RV parks, doing all kinds of things. And if an investor doesn't like one or the other, Mm -hmm. they're not stuck being in it. They can pick and choose. So it could be diversified and it could be customizable. And it's all under one umbrella. And so I'm very excited about that. I have a 506C, which I've been running for a little while. I just opened a 506B. So uh, sophisticated investors can also get into it, not just accredited investors. So yeah, excited I, about both of those. I love the format. And we we have funds through the same same company. We both have similar, similar funds. I love the format of it. You know, I love the customizable aspect of it. There are lots of things about it that I love, but uh gives you a lot of options, a lot of flexibility, and you know, best of luck as as you go forward, you know, growing that fund out. So anyway, real quick change of pace here. We're gonna talk to, to Vivica now. So Vivica, welcome to, to the show today. Thanks for having me, Brian. Excited to be here. Thank you. So, yes. so my name is Vivica Rojo. I am 24 years old. I'm based out of California. 
my parents have always been very social justice oriented. Mm -hmm. And so that's been kind of like a, a driving force to my life and my motivations. So when I went to college, um, I had the privilege and opportunity to go to college. I earned my degree from UC Santa Cruz in 2020 mm -hmm. in critical race and ethnic studies. And I minored in legal studies. And so out of college, I wasn't exactly sure what I wanted to do, but I did know I wanted to serve the community in some capacity. And so I worked with 18 to 24 year olds in San Francisco uh, who were experiencing homelessness and the other challenges that come with housing instability. And then I moved forward to work at a middle school. So I was running the uh, school's wellness center, and I did a lot of crisis intervention and mental health support, educational support. And during my time in these jobs, I found myself feeling a little bit helpless. Mm -hmm. So like when I was in college, I was like, you know, I'm going to get a job and I'm going to be, you know, helping people and it's going to be great. It's going to be the solution. And, you know, it ended up being more of a stark reality that like, okay, you know, there's lack of funding and resources to, to provide the quality services and support and education that is needed. So I was like, okay, it's time to start thinking bigger. And again, very grateful for my father. I ended up joining or starting in the multifamily real estate space with him. And he had been looking for different investment opportunities. So, you know, like the stock market and cryptocurrency at first. And then um, he came up on an opportunity to uh, go to a workshop for mm -hmm. multifamily and it's kind of all she wrote. Then we yeah. joined into a mentorship starting the very end of July. Mm -hmm. And so we established our LLC Justice Capital holds a lot of meaning for us. And yeah, just working diligently every day, trying to establish our name, um, network. We're more on the acquisitions side of things. So we've been building mm -hmm. out our teams, establishing those relationships with brokers like you all were talking about earlier. And yeah, so that's that's where I am right now. Awesome. Awesome. I mean, it looks like, looks like you guys, uh, I guess saw the light with multifamily and, and, you know, it's like, Hey, that's all she wrote. We're, we're all in on this, this new venture. So I love that it's you and your dad together. I think that's a, it's a partnership that'll, it'll probably last. I see a lot of syndicators, you know, after their first deal kind of split up, but, uh, don't think that's going to happen. You guys are uh, have a little more bonding than that. But uh, <laughs> yes, congratulations at your young age. Yeah. That aware. And that, you know, getting into this phenomenal, I wish <laughs> that yeah. I had started at, at your young age. That's phenomenal. Oh, yeah. Thanks. I mean, I, yeah, there's a lot to be said about that. There, there's a lot of times, you know, man, if, if I, if I only had half of your mind at age 24, you know, I wonder what I'd be right now. But anyway, so you, you talked a lot about, you know, the reason you do things, social justice, but if you, if you could boil down your big burning why to, you know, a couple of sentences, what would that be? Yeah, yeah, thank you. So again, I've I've been blessed with a lot of privilege and opportunity. And I've also seen a lot of suffering around me. Um, in my family and my communities, and I'm tired of it. And I'm not saying um, so like in the future in five to seven years, I want to start my own community-based project. And I'm not saying that that's going to be the end all be all like the entire solution, but it, it, it does put me in a place where I can help support the community through education, mental health in capacities that I just can't right now. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Awesome. Thanks for sharing. I appreciate that. 
And that said, my favorite part of the show is coming up right now. Vivica, we got Jeff on the line here. What do you want to ask him? Hi, Jeff. It's been great to hear your background, and I'm really excited for this portion. Okay, so I have a few questions. The first one has like a subpart to it, and I tried to provide a little bit of context. So it's a little bit lengthy, and I'm happy to repeat anything. So what guidance can you offer in terms of building relationships with brokers while you are still building credibility as a multifamily investor without assets and an SCRO? Because, right, the, the goal tends to be like build relationships where you are getting pocket deals or like you talked about your story with the broker calling you first. And so what was your experience? I know, again, you talked a little bit about that. And what are some tips you can offer? Well, first of all, in order to get the broker relationship, you have to have a relationship. Getting to know them and finding something that you have in common, that's always a good way to do it. If you could find out what they have in common, you're young, maybe they have some young children, or maybe you have some cultural things in common. Or uh, as Brian and I were talking earlier, we had uh, swimming in mm -hmm. common. Yeah. Uh, anything that you could find, maybe you like dogs, maybe you like cats, whatever it happens to be, you want to try to find some hook that you can communicate with them other than just saying, what do you have for me? Do you have a deal? Do you have another offering? Finding some way to, an excuse, I guess, to contact them and say, hey, I saw this great article about something, some common interest that you have. Uh, or something that, you know, that you have in common in some way, you know, that's, that's kind of a way to get yourself to stand out. Yeah. And what Jeff says, you know, if I can put that in a couple of words, it's just building relationships. You know, I mean, you start with something, some commonality you have, and I love the answer, Jeff. I mean, you start with something you have in common and you build on that and you create relationships with the investors. And, you know, looking, looking back at the people who've, invested with me, you know, it's typically the people that I've done the best job creating relationships with, you know, and there, there's a lot of people who have been interested that, you know, maybe I've dropped the ball on the relationship thing that have, have never invested with me. So yeah, build relationships and start from, start from scratch. That's awesome. That's awesome. Especially because, and thank you both for sharing because, you know, we're in the multifamily space and I think we forget that like, we're all still human, you know, we all still like to do, we have hobbies and interests. And so that's great. Thank you. Mm -hmm. oh, and then a sub question to that is like, okay, so when you're first reaching out to a broker, what is your take on effectiveness when it comes to phone calls, like a cold call versus like other means of communication, like email or LinkedIn as a sort of intro? You know, they typically are getting hundreds and hundreds of yeah. emails and mm -hmm. a lot of people hitting them up on LinkedIn. Now, the thing is, is for the most part, they're out there looking for you. They need you as well. So I, I get brokers calling me all the time and I got brokers sending things all the time to me. But that's not a very close relationship. I mean, I still have people from Houston when I was really involved in Houston that are saying, hey, I got this new deal. I got this deal or whatever. They're coming after you with deals. You need to go and talk to them. This may be a deal that you're not really interested in if they send you a deal, but you could go and look at that deal, evaluate that deal. And if the deal doesn't fit for whatever reason, maybe it's the not type of property you want, the size that you're ready for, 
or whatever it may be, or maybe the numbers just don't work. You don't want to just drop the ball. You go back and say, hey, you know, I looked this deal over and this is why it doesn't fit into my criteria. Either the numbers are way off and the returns aren't what I'm looking for, or maybe it's a class C and I'm looking for class B, whatever it is, but have a discussion with them and don't just say, hey, this just doesn't work. You know, so you're trying to continue the conversation. You're also trying to show them your intelligence and your knowledge on underwriting and understanding the business. And in the meantime, you're letting them know what you're looking for. You're giving them a better idea of what you're looking for. So always follow up and always do it quickly. And that's something that, that I know that I failed at a lot of times where I let something sit because I was busy. But the faster you get back to them, they're going to know that you're on the ball and you're looking at it and you really understand and you have a good reason why you're turning it down. It gives you an excuse to talk to them, yeah. you know, and explain to them and let them know that you're, you have knowledge. Yeah. I love it. But use, use every opportunity to build the relationship. And I'll, I'll talk about a, a quick story. I mean, when I was early, early in my investing career, I was our acquisitions guy. I was our deal finder. And I think everybody, Vivica, we actually talked about this yesterday, but I think everybody up front is a deal finder because you know you don't have a deal yet. So you don't need an asset manager, but or any other things. But I was talking to a broker once and I, I remember he he gave me a call and we we'd established a relationship. We was able to finally convince somebody that we were serious investors and we were going to be able to close. And I remember him calling me up and asking me very specifically about what my deal criteria was. And I was able to give him a very specific deal criteria. And then what he said at the end of the conversation shocked me. He says, okay, I'm going to get on the phone this week and I'm going to call every owner in this area on every property that meets your deal criteria and see if I can find something for you. Because that's what a lot of times what the brokers do. I mean, if the brokers don't just sit around, wait for deals to come to them. They're also hunters, you know, so they're going out to find the deals and they're going out to make these connections. And so if, if you're really good at building the relationship, getting back with the brokers, make them understand that you're serious and that you're looking at every property they send you're much more likely to get that broker that looks at you as a buyer now and says, okay, if I can find something that meets Vivica's criteria, they're going to pull a trigger. Two things on that, Brian. One, having a clear criteria gives them an idea of what you want. Don't just say, hey, I want a good deal because they have no clue what a good deal is for you. Yeah. Okay. The other thing is, is a lot of times the commercial brokers want both sides of the deal. So maybe in residential, you have a listing broker and a buyer's broker. A lot of times in commercial real estate, they're on both sides of it. Mm -hmm. So they're because they want, I don't know if they're greedy or what, but they don't like splitting the pie. They like both sides. (laughs) So so they're going to do, as Brian said, they're going to be calling the owners and getting the listings, but they're also looking for the buyers. So they're looking for both sides. So that's both sides of that relationship you want to, you know, get into. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. Thank you both. And I kind of I appreciate the like the strategies and like it's a little bit of, of validation because that is what we've been doing, trying to be very responsive and telling them like this is why the numbers don't work. This is what we need for our investors in terms of cash on cash, etc. So thank you. Yeah. All right. So my next question. 
It's a little meaty again. So this relates to fundraising and building your investor base. Regardless whether you see yourself fulfilling the uh, investor relations role, um, I hear of the importance of your entire team always trying to raise money and get those soft commitments. Aside from like branding, you know, building your, your website, having your business cards, your social media presence, what should individuals be doing on a regular basis to move the needle in this area? Well, I think Brian started on that with the relationships we was talking about investors as well as brokers is meeting a lot of people. Networking. Networking is the key. I've been doing networking for years and 99% of the people that I have as investors, you know, I've met in some kind of networking. Uh, either they saw me on a podcast and contacted me afterwards, or they uh, we met at a seminar or a boot camp or something like that. More recently, I've started the social media stuff that I hadn't done in the past. So that's where I just redid my website. And now I have different articles, eBooks that I've written, and I'm passing them out, you know, as far as uh, giving out information for people to get onto my list so I can contact them. But it's also touching them touching them multiple times, multiple times over and over again with different media. So if you're on social media and you're touching them with your newsletter, you're touching them or with announcements, you're touching them. But the more people are touched and they see you, they see you a professional, they understand your expertise, then they're starting to build that relationship with you and feel more like they know you. And that's great because they feel more comfortable with you and then they'll be more willing to, you know, trust you with their investments. Yeah. I'll add something else that, you know, as you scale, it's it becomes harder and harder to keep personal relationships up, you know, and that that kind of becomes the the difficulty, you know, when, when you get to that scaling point, you just have to bring in more and more and more investors. And so at some point, you know, you've got to figure out how to automate everything that you can, you know, automate a lot of the the, the menial stuff so you don't have to uh, keep on redoing it. And one quick example that anyone can do, when I realized that after my investing calls, you know, I was sending an email that said almost the exact same thing to every investor, mm-hmm. I wrote down a template. And, you know, this was before I got into CRMs or everything else, but while you're doing that, while you're building the relationships, figure out where you can trim your time down and, and figure out where you can build efficiencies in there. So like, like I said, I, I had a, um, a word pad on my desktop that had the templated email that went out to the investor after the first call. And instead of writing the same email over and over again, I wrote it once, cut and paste it in there. And then would edit, you know, and it, it took it took that email, you know, writing that email from 10 minutes to two minutes, you know, it was cut and paste. And then, hey, it was great talking to you today, Jeff, about blah, 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 blah. And then the rest of the email was, was pretty standard. But so, yeah, definitely focus on the relationship. But as you scale, you need to also figure out ways to um, become as efficient as possible. Um, so, Anyway, um, I, I love the position I'm in where I get to hear, you know, Jeff say, you know, drop some some gems and I can just, you know, spend a little bit of time thinking of, you know, hmm, you know how can I how can I add to that? But uh, I love this podcast, love the hosting thing, but we are pretty much out of time right now. So one last question for each of you. 
And it's how can listeners learn more about you? Jeff, you can go first. Okay. You could uh, go to my website, synergeticig.com. I've got a fabulous new website that I'm really excited about. Mm -hmm. And you could reach me at jeff at synergeticig.com. And also I've got some, uh, a free ebook that mm-hmm. you can get at sigcre.com slash sponsor. And that will get you a free ebook on what to ask deal sponsors. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you want to come in as a LP in a deal, what things you need to learn about deal sponsors uh, before you get into a deal. Awesome. All right. Thanks a lot, Jeff. I appreciate it. And Vivica, same question for you. How can listeners learn more about you? Yes, thank you. So you are welcome to check out my website as well. It's rojojusticecapital.com and rojo is R-O-J-O. And you can also find me on LinkedIn and LinkedIn Vivica Rojo. And then last but not least, feel free to reach out via email. My email is Vivica, V-I-V-I-C-A, at rojojusticecapital.com. No, that's wordy. Yeah, well, we'll put links to everything in the show notes so that it'll make it really, really easy for them to uh, to email you or find your guys' websites. They can just hit the show notes, you know, swipe, tap, and that magical internet thing will whisk them away and take them to your, your website. So thanks a lot. Appreciate you guys both for being on the show today. I had a great time and uh, hope you guys did too. Yeah, this was fun. Just lots of fun. Definitely enjoyed it. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Diary of an Apartment Investor podcast by the Tribe of Titans. If you're still listening, you obviously liked it. So go ahead and subscribe to the podcast, leave a five-star rating and review if you haven't already, and then make sure to check out our YouTube channel, which incidentally has a ton of video content that you'll also enjoy and learn from. Now, if you're interested in being on the show, go to our website, diaryofanapartmentinvestor.com and fill out the questionnaire on the website. And for more educational content and for more information about our educational community, check us out at thetribeoftitans.info.